everyone. My name is Catherine Gorley, and I'd like to thank you for tuning in today to another episode of the Injury Prevention Academy, a podcast brought to you by Dorn Companies, the country's leading wellness-based pain management and injury prevention company. Dorn is committed to reducing costs of healthcare and workers' compensation, as well as reducing lost productivity, which has resulted in over $100 million in savings over the last 20 years for our clients. Joining us today is Dr. Ian Dunigan. Dr. Ian Dunigan has 25 years experience working in military, mining, research, and scientific consulting. He is the director and chief advisor of Melius Consulting, which results, I'm sorry, which focuses on industry improvement, where he works with mining, oil and gas, rail, energy, and safety critical industry and Sleep for Performance, which focuses on athletic improvement, where he works in Formula One, basketball, combat sports, rugby, and Major League Baseball. He also holds two adjunct positions at the University of Western Australia and Edith Cohen University. Welcome, Ian. Thanks, Hasha. Nice to meet thank you. Yeah, no, great to meet you as well. Uh, thank you so much for being able to join us. No problem. Now, I know you've worked with a range of athletes from basketball to rugby to even to high endurance swimmers to understand their sleep patterns and see how they can improve their performance. So how do you approach the subject of fatigue with a variety of professionals and form those effective plans to combat something that is obviously a very common issue around the world and most importantly occurs outside of the workplace? Yeah, um, you've used a very interesting word there, which can be quite um, contentious amongst either athletes or shift workers or people in the working population. And that's uh, the word fatigue. And we often get this word, I think, um, we all always have different definitions of it. And there's, a, there's never one consensus of what fatigue is, because we can have fatigue from, you know, burnout from working hours or a, a busy period of work, um, you know, end of financial year, end of month, depending on your type of role, um, safety critical tasks, shutdowns and so on, or long distance driving. So so the word fatigue is, is really should be looked at as an outcome um, of poor management, I think, of performance and, and recovery tactics. So um, I often kind of bypass fatigue because you can have mental and physical fatigue um, in these in these environments so what i often go back to is the recovery hierarchy and when we talk about recovery whether it be for a shift worker or for an athlete the number one recovery modality which is free by the way i'm not charging for this this is free 100 percent free or your money back <laughs> as i like to say um it's sleep so when we look at the recovery permit sleep is the base of that permit and it's free it's the best thing you can do in terms of recovery so the first thing i do when approaching this is is understanding where sleep sits um, or lies, pardon the pun, within the recovery modality and how it can be used. And I think whether we're looking at shift workers, people in the general population, elite athletes, recreational athletes, whoever it might be, the first part is is the is the sell of the importance of sleep. But you don't want to oversell it. So what you do is you tell. So it'll generally be some form of education information and talk about more broadly in positive terms so always using affirmative language and not negative language like you can't go out on a friday night to have a drink you can't sleep in you can't do this it's like imagine if you could be faster if you could have a better reaction time if you could play the sport longer so it depends on the athletes as well generally with athletes are around 30 years of age i'll be i'll talk to them about the importance of increasing the longevity of their career and um, if it's shift workers over the age of 40 it's about maximizing recovery under time off and optimizing performance whilst at work and for younger people it's going it might be it might be the inverse of that it might be like would you like to have you know better quality of time off so you can go partying with your friends so it's going to depend on on what what, what i often talk, call is the whiff of what's in it for me and that's going to be different for everybody so it's it can be very difficult to do that and and i can tell you from working from elite athletes you know right down to amateur athletes everybody needs that personalization we're humans at the end of the day and we need something to kind of clutch onto or grab onto where it's going to be something that's actually going to affect us in terms of making a positive outcome yeah absolutely because if someone feels that somehow it doesn't relate to them thinking oh no i you know i get plenty of sleep you know sometimes they might have a tendency to not completely listen or not think that that's going to help them in any way. 
Yeah, for sure. And I think one of the issues we see, again, across all groups is our inability as humans to assess our own sleep. We are absolutely dreadful at assessing our own sleep, really, when it comes down mm -hmm. to it, because all we're really doing is reporting the time we went to bed, and the time we got up and basically kind of, well, oh, how do we feel? But we got no idea about the sleep cycles we're going through. We got no idea about even the disturbances we've had because we could have disturbances overnight that we're not even conscious of. And we've got no idea if we have a sleep disorder or a sleep problem. So we're pretty bad. What we're doing is kind of, you know, it's like a kid drawing a picture. We're just drawing the outline of what's going on in this picture, but we haven't got the ability to to put in the detail, you know, to draw in the eyes and the nose and fill in the color. We, we don't do that. And numerous studies have shown this as well in all populations. However, people do get quite irate because what they feel and what's actually happening from an objective, so the subjective, what they feel versus the objective when we measure them with scientifically validated tools, um, such as polysonography in a laboratory or actigraphy in the field, will often be completely opposite ends of the spectrum. And this can be a difficulty as well, because we have to then coach and, you know, go through that change management with the athletes or the shift worker or the team member and the leaders as well. So from an organizational point of view and an individual point of view, to try and bring this data in together, to get them on board and to make some sustainable changes going forward. So there's lots of moving parts that comes along with this. And because sleep is one of those, I would say <clears throat> it is a hard science in terms of you know, our measurement in, in terms of laboratory stuff and in the field. But once we start getting into the field in the world of what we call chronobiology in this applied space, it can become a bit of an art as well because we've got to bring in project management, change management. It's a little bit of psychology, a little bit of philosophy. There's mm -hmm. a little bit of everything going on here as well. So I think you have to be pretty well versed um, in, in this kind of change management. And I can tell you that this is not something I learned overnight. This has taken me 20 odd years of experience in, in, you know, in different roles to do it. And I'm still not good at it either. I would say. So, right. <laughs> you know, it's difficult. Well, and, 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 and you mentioned um, people not understanding the, the impacts that outside forces can have on, on sleep. Like, you know, like you said, people say, oh yeah, no, I went to bed at, at 10 PM. I woke up at seven and I feel great. Great. Right. Yeah. Um, but not realizing that they went to bed and for an hour they looked at their phone. Yeah. You know, the, 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 the effects that the technology can have on, on that impact of sleep, um, I think is something that I think more and more people are starting to kind of look at when they're looking at their own sleep patterns, I believe. <clears throat> yeah, it's interesting. Uh, yesterday, we're actually writing up, um, you mentioned some of the work we've done in ultra marathon swimmers, but we've, we've done two studies really with those. And we're just polishing off the, the second manuscript for submission this month. Nice. Um, at the latest in November. So I was going through one of my co-authors yesterday. And one of the things we've been finding in this group is, is all these would say external factors that we, we can't really or haven't quantified. And it's, it's been an area where we've kind of been a bit um, we've kind of, I suppose, a bit naive, really, where we haven't really captured enough data around it. So it's a big learning for us where we need to capture all these other factors like, you know, household income, number of kids, single parent families, um, second jobs, all these other factors, because it could be all these external factors that's impacting the available time for sleep. So I think mm -hmm. that's one part. And then the other part is um, some people are really, and this is interesting. I've come across people who are highly educated, you know, master's degrees in these leadership jobs, and they'll talk about getting more sleep. And then we'll go through their sleep schedule and they'll be going to bed at 11 p.m. and getting up at five. And they're like, I can't get eight hours sleep. And I'm like, well, you're only spending like, you know, five or six hours in bed. So you're not going to get eight hours out of that. What you have is a mathematical problem, not a sleep problem. And they'll be like, right. yeah, but how can I get more sleep? I'm like, go to bed earlier or get up later. So you have to make Absolutely. that available time. So that's, sometimes even that in that conversation is a game changer for people where to go, oh, I never, uh, oh, okay. And it sounds really stupid and simple, but a lot of people have that problem. And then the other problem or the other challenge that you're talking about is technology. And this is interesting because despite what you would read in social media um, or in papers, the literature is quite divided on electronic devices before bed. So a lot of people think that the blue light is what's affecting people. And so studies are, 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 um, 
are quite divided. I've done uh, been involved in two studies, one in the laboratory and one in um, in the field, and we found really no effective electronic device in in young athletes. So that was in netball athletes and in judo athletes at the Australian Institute of Sport, and we basically found mm-hmm. uh, very little effect to no effect. And what we did find though that was basically there needs to be more stuff done around training times and training design. So instead of getting athletes up at six o'clock in the morning to go training, maybe let them sleep in and so they can get more sleep. However, um, on the other side of that, you might want to look at these studies that say electronic devices affect you falling asleep. So Catherine, if we're if we're in a study and, and you're exposed to electronic devices, mm-hmm. it might take you 30 minutes to fall asleep. Um, if I'm not exposed to it, it might take me 20 minutes to fall asleep. Now, the clinical norms to fall asleep are somewhere between 10 to 20 minutes. Um, and even up to 30 minutes is okay. So really, me falling asleep in 20 minutes and you in 30 yeah, there's a statistical difference between between that. It's taking you 10 minutes longer. But is that resulting in less sleep? Is that resulting okay. in more fragmentation or less fragmentation? Are you sleeping in longer in the morning or waking up? So what's is it a chronotype effect where it takes you, you might go to bed later anyway? Or some people just take a long time to fall asleep. I'm one of those people. I need to read and listen to like, you know, talk back radio where my mm-hmm. wife can go to bed and just, click off she goes so everybody's different right and so that's one part of it but what i would say is a is a challenge across um nearly everybody particularly in the professional bracket is working before bed and we see this a lot people come home from work spend some time with the kids have dinner maybe even go to the gym after that then come back have their own dinner sit down in front of the tv netflix is on their phone is beside them a glass of wine and laptop on their lap so they're doing emails drinking a glass of wine, scanning Instagram and watching, you know, something on Netflix in the background. And so they're getting all this stimulus from different angles. So irrespective of the um, electronic devices in terms of light, I would urge people to think about the type of activity before bed, because if we're doing an activity that's highly cognitive and it's stimulating cortisol, we won't be able to produce melatonin because it's an opposite inverse relationship. And we won't be able to kind of, you know, I suppose, for want of a better word, relax our nervous system and initiate sleep. Because if you're doing a spreadsheet at nine or 10 o'clock at night while drinking wine, this is not really the thing to be doing, you know, is no. to be going through figures. So you need to be doing something relaxing in the hour before bed. Now, if that's sitting back, watching the Kardashians and giggling on Instagram with your friends, maybe mm-hmm. that might be relaxing for you. But I would urge people to avoid all this heavy cognitive work before bed. And the other thing as well is some people go, yeah, but I read before I go to bed. And then you find out that they read like engineering manuals because they're studying a master's in engineering. Right. You know? So it's like read something that's relaxing. So think about more of type of activity before bed as opposed to electronic devices. I think that's a good place to start. No, that that's really, really great advice, honestly, because I think people that, yeah, they have that those those general ideas as to how to relax, but not looking at the actual finer details yeah. of that. Um, now, now switching gears from kind of the, the kind of people at home, I know in 2021, you were involved in a study on the effects of shift work for those high risk remote employees in the mining industry. So, yeah. you know, these are people who are not being able to relax at home. This is a completely different environment for them. So how did the conversations about, about recovery and, and those fatigue risks change when workers are out in the field? Yeah, so this is an interesting study. And um, this is probably my um, bread and butter. It's where I've really, I suppose, cut my teeth in the, in the area of sleep. Um, and this was a paper called Digging for Data. Um, and this was a, a from a PhD student of mine, Gemma Maisie, um, and his PhD was sponsored through our business, Media Consul- Media's Consulting, in conjunction with Eda County University here in Western Australia. So to give you a bit of a background, and this paper is freely available, we can put it in the show notes. It's called Digging for Data, How Sleep is Losing Out to Roster Design Sleep Disorders and Lifestyle Factors. To give people a bit of a background on this before we jump into it, this is in um, the mining industry, which is a massive component <clears throat> of uh, Western Australia's I suppose, economic output or GDP here, if you want to call it that. Um, and so uh, mining is, 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 is rife here in Western Australia. We've got people living in, in remote towns, working in mining. We've got people doing what's called fly in, fly out. So they might reside here in, in Western Australia in Perth. Mm-hmm. But then they might fly to a mine site, um, some two-hour flight away, uh, basically work for a week or two weeks, and then fly home and have a week or two weeks off. 
So I think you said uh, catching your best in Colorado. So it'd be like somebody coming from Los Angeles up to, to Colorado for a week or two and then going back to Los Angeles as well. Except when they're in these remote places, it's in a remote place. There is no right. town. There is no facilities. They're in a purpose-built camp um, with a small room often referred to as a donger. So it's a bit like a little cabin or a prefabricated thing that has a single bed, a table, uh, and, a, and a small ensuite for them as well. All their meals are provided and they'll typically work a 12-hour shift. So in this study here, people worked uh, a 12-hour day shift. So they did seven 12-hour day shifts from half five in the morning till half five in the evening. Then they had a 24-hour break and then they came back and they did seven night shifts from half five to half five in the morning again. And then they had a week off. Now, this this was challenging because not only did they start at half five, but to get up and have a shower, have their breakfast, get the bus to the mine site each and every day, they had to wake up at an average time of four o'clock in the morning. And so right. um, this was pretty typical across the mining industry. But despite mining being a, a multi-billion dollar industry globally, there is very little, probably about 15 papers looking, looking at the effect of sleep loss or fatigue management in, in mining and in particularly in fly and fly out. We've got the highest percentage of fly and fly out anywhere in the world here in Western Australia due to the nature of this state. Um, as I was saying to you before the podcast started, we're nine times the size of, nine times the size of Texas. Right. So if you think things are big in Texas, come to Western Australia. That's what I said to my Texan friends. But um, that being said, uh, it was very low sleep across the board. So on average, people in this study, when they were working day shift, were sleeping you know, um, between roughly, you know, about maybe six hours on average a night. So it's anywhere kind of from, you know, five hours and 50 minutes um, to the max was eight hours on the changeover day when they were switching over to nights. But then on night shift, they were sleeping, um, you know, roughly about five and five and a half to five hours, 45 minutes a night. So not even getting that seven to nine hours um, sleep and even less than six hours each and every night. We also did a, a biomathematical modeling in the study, which was uh, equates to performance or reaction time. And so we found that basically the more night shifts that we did, the lower the score went down. Now, a lot of people would say, oh, if I do night shifts, I get used to it. And yeah, that's right. People do get used to it in terms of how they feel. I feel like I'm getting used to it. But again, it comes back to my earlier comment about subjective feeling um, against the objective measure. And so as, as they were going on, they were actually getting worse reaction time, but didn't realize it, but thought they were getting better. Um, right. Because we're trying to survive as humans. So we want to try and, you know, get over this, these deleterious effects of sleep loss. But these guys were actually getting worse. Now, it did level off or bottom off. And to give you an idea, the modeling showed that people were some like slightly less in terms of reaction time. Um, if we equated it to another reaction time test to 0.08% blood alcohol equivalency, which I wow. think is a legal limit in the US. And we have 0.05 yes, here in Australia. So that's quite impaired. So people would be just slightly worse than that. So you can imagine that's what the reaction time might be. And then under time off, it was, it was, you know, it was taught or hypothesized that these guys would get a lot of sleep, you know, and they would make up for it. But again, on average, we're getting like about seven hours and 15 minutes. So just barely getting back into the green. And then they would go and do that whole cycle again. And then on the day they would fly back up to the mine site, they were getting up at half three in the morning. So the very first day, they could be awake for up to 17 hours. So yeah, it was quite quite problematic. Now, this was also as well, even though there was lots of, um, this was, um, although there's a, an issue in terms of having not very many papers out there, <clears throat> in this paper as well, this was the world's biggest study to our knowledge in mining, and there was only 75 people in that. So we still oh, have really? a lot. Yeah, we still have a lot to do. And we use objective measures of sleep here using the, uh, the ready band actigraphy device from Fatigue Science. Uh, we used lots of questionnaires. Um, in terms of looking at the prevalence of um, of um, the prevalence of risk of sleep disorders, and an interesting finding here as well, Catherine, and I'll finish on this point for the study because I, I could talk about this one all day. It's about the associations, and this this actually found <clears throat> that there was an increased risk for obstructive sleep apnea was associated with age and BMI, and this is really important because this lines up with some of the general demographic data. So, for every one year increase in age, the odds risk ratio. Um, the odds of risk for OSA increased by 6%. So for every year you get, got older, 6%. Mm -hmm. And for every one unit increase in BMI, so body mass index, if you went from 25 to 26 to 27 and so on, the odds for OSA increased by 19%. So basically in this model, really? it shows that the older we get and the heavier we get, 
the more at risk we're having we are we are for obstructive sleep apnea. So obviously we can't get younger, right? Right. Unless we're unless maybe we're one of the Kardashians and we got lots of money to make ourselves look younger, but we're still not getting younger. But it's not <laughs> actually getting younger. It's not actually getting younger, yeah. We're just fooling people and using filters. Right. But we can't get younger. But what we can do, what's a modifiable factor inside our control is our body mass index. So keeping your, your weight down into a normal range. And we see this across you know, Australia, Western Europe, and in North America, that mm. we are getting heavier. And as we're getting heavier, yes. we're developing obstructive sleep apnea, and we're more prevalent of type 2 diabetes and other medic- metabolic conditions. So it's a bit like vitamin D. You can't overdose on this one. You can't do anything bad. If you can get your BMI down towards under 25, it's going to be a positive outcome for you. And that is difficult for shift workers, but that's where I'd be aiming for. Right. So it sounds like a, a lot of the conversations about those recovery risks about, or I'm sorry, about recovery and the risks, if you're not giving yourself that time for recovery is really about education. It's it's making sure that those workers understand that this is the recovery time that you need, especially when you're shifting back and forth between a day shift and a night shift. Yeah, and we did do another study on this randomized control trial where we looked at education as in one of the interventions. So we looked at education as intervention. We looked at um, biofeedback through a device as, a, as, a, as an intervention. And we looked at a combination as well, plus a control group with nothing. And that paper is currently under review. But I can tell you that there was very little difference between those interventions, if any. And I think the reason is, and it points back to what I said earlier on about organizations and individuals in this study, it was very evident, and we put this in discussion as well, and our or, a randomized control trial really just, I think, it reinforced or highlighted this point that this shift start times are too early. So this like 5.30 in the morning to 5.30 in the evening is just way too early. Mm-hmm. We need to be pushing those start times further up, and um, we need to be looking at more of the design of the roster because this is where we can see that the organizational design of this roster is very difficult. It's very easy to turn around and say, yes, get more sleep. But when we talk about the timing of sleep, it's crucial because most of these people are going to bed between nine and half nine at night, which is quite early. And if we said to them, well, just go to bed at eight o'clock. Now we're getting into an area which is called a forbidden zone or the wake maintenance zone. So between 6 p.m. and 9 p.m. at night is the forbidden zone or the wake maintenance zone. This is the hardest time in a 24-hour period for a human to initiate sleep. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Okay. So you may have experienced this, Catherine. If you've worked in an office and during the day, you're like, oh, it's one o'clock. I'm so tired. I've had hardly any sleep over the last few nights. I've had such a bad night. I'm going to go home, have my dinner, have a shower. I'm going to be in bed by seven o'clock. I don't care what's going on. I'm just going to go to bed. And then around five o'clock, you're driving home and you're driving down the, the highway there or you're driving down. What's that street in the middle of that? Oh, you can't drive down that street in the middle of Denver, can you? Is it 16th Street? Yes. Yeah. Or you're even walking down 16th Street and you're you're strolling down and you're going, oh, the further I get away from work, the better I feel. Maybe I'm <laughs> not actually sleepy. Maybe I just work with a bunch of people who make me feel tired. And if I get away from them, I feel really good. Right. But what's happening is as you leave work, you are entering into this forbidden zone or this wake maintenance zone. This is highest sort of alertness, best time for cardiovascular efficiency and strength. This is a great time if you want to hit a PB in the gym. And it may be a hangout from the time when the sun used to go down and we used to get hunted by saber-toothed tigers and mountain lions and all the rest of them. And right. we still have this left in our in our sort of our DNA, so to speak. And so it can be very difficult for us to get to sleep before nine o'clock. Now, some people a little bit earlier than nine, if you're what's called a lark chronotype, you get up very early and go to bed very early. Um, so that, that can be an effect of that. But in general, most humans find it difficult to fall asleep at this time. So it's not as easy as saying go to bed earlier. Um, you know, it's very it's very difficult for us to go to bed earlier. And also as well, from a practical standpoint in this study, people were getting back at, you know, um, 6 p.m., back to the back to the camp. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe go to the gym, bring their loved ones, have some dinner, have a little bit of downtime. Going to bed between nine and a half time is actually pretty good, I thought, really. For mm-hmm. them to get back up at four o'clock in the morning or allow that time in bed is actually quite good. So I think sometimes we, sometimes we, bang on the heads too much of the shift workers. I think mm-hmm. organizations need to, you know, 
uh, point the finger back at themselves as well. And coming back to like the hierarchy of control that we see in health and safety, are we eliminating the hazard first off? Because that's the best thing we can do as opposed to just giving people education. The education is great, but what can organizations do in terms of design? And there's lots of novel methodologies we can use around that. And again, I'll give you the, the paper for our methodology for that study because it's published in open access. But like for us in, in research and in consulting, we apply methodologies to this to help organizations ensure that they are creating the space and the time for people to get out of a recovery, but also to match it up as well with you know, productivity needs and finance needs and so on. And so in our business, we often couple the health and safety data with the productivity data and the cost data. And that's what makes us kind of unique at Medias Consulting That's because that's our approach. Right. And, and, and that actually, uh, I think, reminds me, and this is obviously a different group of people that, that, that we're typically working with, you know, the, the professionals, the people uh, working out in remote places, but also those high risk occupations. Um, it actually just reminds me of people wanting to push start times for high schoolers for school. Yes further, a little bit further into the morning, instead of having these kids out, you know, at six, six 30 in the morning, waiting to get on a bus to start their, their school day, let's push it out a little bit further because people are not getting those recovery times, you know, uh, you know, high schoolers, they're in those prime growing years. So that's, that's, I've, I've heard, I've, sorry, I've, I've heard a couple of people say that they're really wanting to push those start times for high schoolers, because I think you that's almost a prime time for people to get into a sleep disorder because they're they're getting into those growing years. It's right before college and they're almost establishing these kind of bad habits in terms of sleep. Yeah. I think it's interesting. And I just I'm just on a point there, clarification. We need to be we need to differentiate between sleep disorders and sleep problems. And oh, so okay. sleep disorders is a, is a term that's applied to over 70 sleep disorders as classified by the American Academy of Sleep Medicine that we follow here in Australia as well. And they're broken into different categories like, um, you know, sleep-related breathing disorders, parainsomnias, insomnias, and so on. I think the start times, just as a point of, um, and this is me being very pedantic, the start times around schools wouldn't necessarily be a sleep disorder, but what it would be is that may result in a sleep problem. But okay. I think you've highlighted something that's very key here, which um, in the high school, uh, um, uh, the high schoolers is very is very interesting because there's a couple of things at play here so first of all you will find that sometimes parents are advocating this earlier start time because the parents want the kids to go to school so they can go to work right so that's part one so that's a classic one about organizational design right mm -hmm. where it's like you design it you're going to get what you design so if you keep pushing that you're going to get a sleep deprived not non-performing you know a kid from a cognitive perspective and a physical perspective so keep keep trying to ruin your kids sleep i would say there, right because you're doing a great job and go earlier if you want because you're just going to make it worse the second thing is that um teenagers have a different chronotype and a chronotype chrono meaning time time type so teenagers generally will fall asleep later and get up later they're not doing it to piss you off they're not doing it to annoy you it's right. how they are designed Mm -hmm. And some teenagers find it very difficult to fall asleep before midnight. So if they're, they can't fall asleep, let's say, to midnight, and you're waking them up at half five or six o'clock to go to school in the morning, they're constantly sleep deprived. No wonder teenagers then sleep in on the weekend because they're not getting right. enough sleep. And teenagers need somewhere between nine and 11 hours of sleep per night in some cases. And especially if they're physically active as well, you know, playing a sport or whatever. I remember back when I was a teenager, I was mad into rugby and I was playing rugby for, you know, a couple of teams. And so on the weekend, I could sleep until two o'clock in the afternoon if I wasn't playing right. again. And my yeah. dad was like, you're so lazy. I was like, well, I'm the one out there playing rugby and you're not. So who's lazy? You know? <laughs> right. I'm not the one that's overweight. You are. So, mm -hmm. so who's lazy? So that's another point to take in as well as chronotypes. Um, and coming back to electronic devices as well, there are studies that have shown now in North America, up in Canada, that the more electronic devices in a, in a kid's room or an adolescent's room, the greater the obesity and the more sleep problems as well, because they have all these options in the room. So one thing you could do is look at even reducing these electronic devices in the room and keeping the room just for sleep. I think sometimes with kids, we say, like, go to your room and do your homework. But then they've got a TV in there as well. They've got some other things. And, they, and the room now becomes this kind of party atmosphere and their friends might come around. And I know kids want, want their own space as well. And I know it's difficult. I'm not advocating that people have like a 10-bedroom house and all these other things. But if you can keep people out of the bedroom during the day or avoid stimulus activities, and 
it's really good. The bedroom just should be just a sanctuary for sleep. So I think there's a few interesting uh, points at play there in terms of um, kids' start times. What we did see during the pandemic were people working from home, and I'm not advocating lockdowns in any shape, way, or form. Um, that's mm-hmm. a separate conversation. I don't want to get into that because I will... Um, <laughs> I'm very much a personal freedom, leave people alone, regardless mm-hmm. what side of politics you're on. But um, we did see that during the lockdowns when kids were able to, um, you know, basically adhere to their own schedule because we're often given like a, a block of tasks to work on. And then classes would maybe convene at 11 o'clock in the morning or online to work through something. Test scores went up for, for a lot of kids in the adolescent bracket. So people mm-hmm. actually got better because we were able to sleep in longer and then work on these other problems. Um, when they weren't sleep deprived. Um, and so depending, and we saw this as well in other people as well, for some people that had flexible schedules, sleep debt actually decreased over this as well. So I, I don't have the answer for it, but I think there's a few variables there that are quite interesting about when we do sure. allow kids to sleep in, we have better test scores. And then when we do optimize our chronotype, we have better performance as well. So, and I'd also just urge the parents to uh, not keep sleep depriving your kids. And if you do have to get up very early to go to school, let the kids sleep on in the weekend. Let them get back into a normal pattern. Yes. Um, there's no benefit from sleep there. Right. Um, now, now, obviously, you mentioned, uh, you know, athletes and people are getting into sports, you know, super, super early in, in their lives. But when you're getting into, uh, into the professional sphere, um, I think, obviously, understanding these, these different um risks and and when to recover is very important for athletes and i know a few years ago you were involved in a study concerning water intake and and how and the effects it can have on sleep and athlete performance so so what is uh, what you call water loading and how can that study be used to understand work performance for people in not just for for athletic performance but also high risk occupations well, I think the first answer to that question is it can't. So we need oh, to be okay. very, yeah, we need to be very specific here. Water loading is a very specific strategy that's used in combat sports. It's also used in horse racing for jockeys, um, in powerlifting, bodybuilding, um, and a few other type of sports as well, but predominantly in combat sports. And it's used for it's a strategy for what's called making weight. So oh, if okay. you watch the U- UFC or you watch boxing events and they have a weigh-in. So it might have to weigh in at 155 pounds. There's a process what's called cutting weight, which often starts six weeks out before the fight. So they will lose some weight um, due to the physical activity in the camp. Um, and then they will lose weight throughout the week before the fight. So for example, I'm about 175 pounds. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I would, if I was to fight, I would probably fight at 155 pounds. So I've got 20 pounds over that. So throughout the course of the fight camp, I might get down to like, you know, 165, 168. And then in the week of the fight, I will use water loading as a strategy, along with um, reducing fiber on my diet, what's called a low residue diet, to then try and get from 168 down to 155. And so water loading is a process where we basically load the person with water for a day or two, and then we actually deprive them of water for another day. So they might go from drinking somewhere around... 12 liters, depending on their body weight. I don't know what that is in ounces, but it's a it's it's mm-hmm. it's a lot. It's a lot yeah. of water. It's about well, maybe about you know three gallons, I think, or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe more. And um, and then we would have to money drink maybe about a half a liter, 500 mils of water for one day. And then basically what is happening is all that fluid then is flushing out of the body. So we're we're trying to trick the kidneys into flushing out the system of lots of water to make a specific weight. And you would weigh in 24 hours before the fight, maybe at 155. And then you'd see, then the next day you would fight, but I would, I would be probably back up to 175 pounds the next day. Mm-hmm. So it's basically okay. just getting them right down to hit a weight and then back up. Now, some people have asked me, can I use that to go to a wedding? Because <laughs> I want to lose weight to fit into a dress. Right. And it's like I got friends, I'm not a dietitian, so I was looking at the sleep effects during that study. But I got friends who are dietitians who work with these elite athletes and, and champions in like the UFC. And they've had people reach out to them and go, can I use it to, 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 no, to get skinny for a wedding? You oh, can, yeah. but the minute you have a drink of alcohol, you're going to pass out because you're so dehydrated, right? right. Um, and and if you're standing there getting married and you've got down to 155 uh, pounds, 
you're mm-hmm. probably just going to pass out even from standing there because these guys right. shuffle to the scales and back out. So what I would say to anybody looking at that study or looking at that work, do not, under any circumstances, use it to, to, to lose weight for any sort of aesthetic means in terms mm-hmm. of going to a wedding or fit into a pair of jeans. Right. Um, it's a very specific strategy used for combat sports um, and it's used widely. We don't advocate, but it's used. So we're trying to make it as safe as possible. So it's right. a very kind of a nuanced area. So yeah, please yeah. don't try that at home. <laughs> right, right. And it definitely sounds that it's, def- it's not something that can really be applied to those high-risk occupations because of the longevity of the work that these occupations are doing. This is very much a very specific thing yeah. for athletes. Okay. Yeah. And we're flushing out electrolytes as well. So it's quite dangerous if you're doing it in a shift work environment and there's lots of heat around as well, either outdoors or in a plant or machinery mm-hmm. and you're dehydrated because we flush these people out with lots of uh, the electrolytes are flushed out as well. So again, I was just looking at the sleep to look at the prevalence of what we call nocturia, which was lots of awakenings from the water loading, but we didn't find any negative effect. We're trying to do more work on this actually with some UFC events coming up where we look at people the week before a fight to see if the effect of the media having a fight and the wear cut in, in, in a real life example, because that was a that was a simulated study in, at the Australian Institute of Sport. Mm-hmm. And so we're looking at this in more detail as we go forward as well. So yeah, don't try this at home, kids. Right. <laughs> well, well, it definitely sounds and and, and obviously it changes. Um, or at least it can change depending on the region that you're that you're working in, uh, depending on you know environmental factors of of, of the climate of mm. of the humidity, anything like that. Um, it definitely just sounds like when when you're looking to optimize your performance of uh, as you know in those high risk occupations, it really is about just having a a just a good amount of water. It's it's not overloading it where you think that maybe you know you'll be able to to perform better if you're drinking a lot of water but it's also making sure that you're not dehydrating yourself when you're working in these high risk occupations yeah there's a there's um you know many companies have different products around this as well particularly around dehydration or ensuring it and i think there's there's obviously an issue here and again i'm not an occupational hygienist or a dietitian but what i have seen from my time working in, in as a health and safety generalist in a mining company and working more broadly as a as a health expert in a mining company globally is is around the effects of dehydration on sleep and performance and again there's lots of work to be done on that so i'd urge people as well as whilst we're drinking lots of water and keeping hydrated as well we need to look at electrolytes and electrolytes are key as well you know and that's around having potassium sodium and magnesium in the system because if we drink too much fluid we can flush it out the other thing is a lot of people think oh well i'm just drinking you know, a soft drink like a Coca-Cola or a Mountain Dew or something like these other mm-hmm. drinks because it has water in them and that's hydrating me. Not really. So you got to be no. careful there about the sugar content. So um, what I can do, Catherine, as well as um, on my podcast, Sleep for Performance, shameless plug there for Sleep for Performance podcast, we're, we're <laughs> sponsored by, we have a sponsorship with LMNT, Element, which is Rob Wolf, um, Rob Wolf's product. Um, and that is an electrolyte product, product which has no sugar in it. It's about five calories and it has mm-hmm. potassium, magnesium, and sodium in it. And so there's a, a there's a, a promotion there for starter packs. If people want to try that, they can get like a starter pack free if they have to make an order. So I can give you that link as well and people can get that discount or that free pack and they can try that. So there is multiple product products out there. But I would urge people when you're looking at um, dehydration stuff or hydration to be careful about the sugar and the caloric content as well. Because again, coming back to our thing about BMI, you don't want to be guzzling like, you know, um, four or 500 calories every day of just liquid and gaining weight to keep hydrated. So you want to kind of keep this in balance. And this is why I like the element drink because element tea, because it just comes in a tiny little sash about sashay about that size that just fits in your pocket and so even when i go traveling for work or whatever i just throw a bunch in the bag and i do jiu-jitsu as well brazilian jiu-jitsu and so sometimes you come out and you're quite dehydrated so you just kind of pour it into the war bottle give it a shake and off you go and it's way better for me than buying these commercial drinks that have lots of sugar and other other mm-hmm. sort of things in them so things like that are, i think what i'd urge people to look at um you know in terms of getting a, a healthy refueling strategy right um now i think uh you know, switching gears um, in terms of the, I'd say, specific things that uh, that people can do to really look at at finding ways to reduce it as, you know, w- what we call fatigue. Um, according to the National Safety Council in the U.S., employees are experiencing the overall uh, the overall kind of feeling of burnout more than yeah. ever. 
Um, now, do you, do you agree with, with that kind of blanket statement or do you believe that it's been, it's more of an issue that's being talked about a little bit more openly? I think it's twofold. I think one, we're seeing a lot more discussion, particularly in Australia and I think in North America from what I've seen. And I haven't been to mm -hmm. North America in a few years, obviously, with the pandemic, but I've been doing some work, um, even though based here in Western Australia, we do a lot of work globally. Um, and so I think that the, the, the plus side is that we are talking more about, uh, we'll say, psychosocial hazards, mental health, burnout, overwork, and so on. On one hand, uh, we've seen a lot of changes to even you know, I think workplace legislation in places like France and Spain where um, employees can't be contacted outside normal working hours to give them a space, even if that's by email. So in France yes. now, like even if you email like a worker in your team at nine o'clock on a Friday night, and even though you don't expect a response, if that email comes in at nine, that, like that's technically, to, and I'm not a lawyer, but it's technically like illegal, you can get in trouble for doing that. So I think that's quite good. Because I think what's happened is over the last few years is the the line between work and time off has has blurred. And yes. I think with smartphones and laptops and so on. So when I started my career, you know, in the military in the mid 90s, it was very much, you know, sort of, you know, you would handwrite or you go to a typist pool of people who would type up stuff. Yeah. And I'm glad like that's changed. But what's yeah. happened is over time is lines have blurred smartphones, laptops, interconnectedness, which is great and so many positive aspects on it. But we're not really, I don't think, respecting people's time. And I'm guilty of that myself um, of asking people to do things outside of normal hours. And I'm also guilty of doing things outside of normal hours myself. So I'm squarely pointing the finger back at myself here in, in this conversation. So I think that's part of it. The lines are blurred. Um, but I also think as well that there is a bigger expectation, particularly on the professional brackets I see. I think in some ways, shift workers go to work, to work at the, the factory or the mine site or drive a truck, wherever it might be, and then they're off. Um, and look, they might get called back in for other shifts as well. We're seeing that happening too with the labor shortages, particularly here in Australia. Um, but then in the professional brackets, I think this kind of working from home hybrid system, people are working sometimes you know, seven days a week. Um, you know, 10, 12, 13 hours a day, conference mm -hmm. calls at different times if, you know, um, if they're in a different country. Um, even technically this morning, and, I'm, and you know, I got up this morning at like 5.45 to do this podcast. Um, so te technically, like, that's outside normal working hours. And I'm not having to go at you, Catherine, because I do it like the right, whole time. No, I, love, I, love, I love what I do. But, uh, right. and, I, and I get up most mornings around that time, but I absolutely love what I do. And I wouldn't have said that time wasn't good unless I was going to get up. But mm -hmm. it's just like these kind of, these lines are getting blurred and I think it, it is a problem. And we do, we are exacerbating burnout and we're, we're expecting more of people than ever before. And I, I think if you look back at, you know, the, the leisure time that people had in the fifties, sixties and seventies, and there's been papers on this, you know, we're just eating away at it. And, were, and the, the one thing that's gone is our sleep. So sleep has gone down as well. So mm -hmm. we're just working more and more and more. And um, yeah, I think it's, I think to answer your question, it's it's twofold. We're 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 getting really bad at, it, but also we're getting more aware of it as well, which is good. I think for some people, it's at that tipping point in some careers, and I think that's why we've seen people during the pandemic go, you know what, I'm resigning, I'm done, because I've just absolutely burnt out. And even right. myself, yesterday having a conversation with some other people, we're all kind of going, can't wait till Christmas, can't wait till Christmas, just take like a couple of weeks off, just go to sleep, 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 mm -hmm. you know. So. Again, yeah. I'm I'm more I'm guilty more than anybody. I take on too much and do too much, so I'm I'm just as guilty. Right. Well, and 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 I think that as um, I think a lot of people can be guilty of that of saying, oh, absolutely, I can do one more thing here. Yeah. Let me do this. Especially when people are working from home, it's so easy to just go into the office, answer an email, and then go back out. But then obviously <laughs> those lines are becoming more and more blurred as you're getting into. Uh, that work-life balance yeah it's yeah. yeah there's no real clear line it's it's very kind of it's very squirrely and wobbly so I think it's uh it's something that maybe you know people should discuss with their leader or set some rules themselves and say look I just really need this time particularly if you're struggling mm -hmm. um you know around this because yeah, again you know sleep is going and then the other thing as well is like uh that we've seen as I've seen as well and I, I spoke to a friend about this and this really annoys me is that companies now are saying well to manage burnout we want to have a mindfulness program and it seems to be like we give people an app or we bring in someone to meditate once a week that we've kind of we've ticked the box and we've done that and people should be more mindful i think that's um that's a lazy way out 
And mm-hmm. I think it's just it's just a cheap way of of trying to address a problem. And then other people start saying in their companies, well, we just need people to be more mindful. It's like a bastardization of meditation. So we've taken meditation out of you know the Eastern religions, and then we've bastardized it for workplaces, and now we're bastardizing again to get sort of you know a performance objective out of it. And that's not the intent of it. So, you know, I think just having a bit more holistic approaches around this burnout um issue needs to be looked at because burnout can lead to depression anxiety sleep loss other health problems and even it has ramifications into people's families as well where you know, right. going to have divorce or family breakups or affecting people's kids so yeah just think about it a bit more carefully before we expect people to to work nearly 24 7 like we're doing at the moment yeah and and i think having that open communication between an organization um between management and then uh between you know everyone from the supervisors to to just regular employees is having that communication about about establishing those those boundaries but also um having i mean i i know that we we use the term of of wellness overall especially when when we're talking about uh being at work, just because obviously work encompasses so much of our lives, uh, but having that communication about how you can effectively um, kind of work throughout the day and not have it affect, say, like sleep and not have it affect uh, things outside of work, I think is mm. so crucial. And I know when we when we speak with HR and safety directors across the country, that that kind of overall sense of, of, of what we call fatigue and overall sense of wellness and how to create wellness programs is a frequent topic when we're discussing those issues affecting all of their employees. Um, so, yeah. I mean, how, how do you feel like those conversations have shifted in the last couple of years? Is it because of COVID and people being more kind of mindful of the world around them? Or is this a conversation that has been, I'd say, steadily growing? I think it's. I think it was steadily growing, and then it's sort of. I, I think between 2014 to 2018, 19, it was actually being removed out of companies from what I saw in the safety critical industries. It was seen as an expense, and mm-hmm. so we were kind of just pulling it out. You know, going, oh, let's reduce that, let's do this. And I think we saw. I I definitely saw this from my experience in safety critical industries. I will call them mining, oil and gas, rail and transportation, where wellness programs and health was actually being taken out, and I I think it was a it was it was done by manage, general management consultants. And I think it was I think it was a massive issue. And mm-hmm. I was appalled at it as well because I saw health standards being removed from businesses, health strategies and so on. And it was kind of like, oh, well, we don't really need that. It's not really applicable. I saw pandemic plans getting pulled out of businesses in 2015. Okay. Oh, we haven't had a pandemic since like 100 years ago. Oh, throw that in the bin. Right. You know, and, and this is like where I think when you get general management consultants in, and I could name these companies, but I won't. I think we can all we can all pick out who these top companies are globally because they come in and they, they look to reduce costs. And this is a this is an issue that happens. And sometimes CEOs and directors, not so much in health and safety or HR, but general CEOs are very focused on let's reduce costs and let's reduce paperwork and let's reduce whatever. Yeah, but you want to have some critical infrastructure there for when the the crap does hit the fan, like we saw a few years ago. And then people are scrambling to make pandemic plans and reinstitute all these things, but they were all gone out of business, as was the corporate knowledge. So just because it doesn't happen today, you might want to have some critical controls in place for future issues that happen. So just because it hasn't happened um, doesn't mean you shouldn't be um, you know, ready for it. I do think, though, since the uh, COVID-19 pandemic has happened, that we are seeing an increase in wellness, and I think rightly so. We see people now talking about, you know, the importance of body mass index again, like we found in our study, but that's all preve- always a preventative, also a preventative measure for, for COVID-19. We've mm-hmm. seen the increase in focus on vitamins. Vitamin D was one that came out. Um, and these are all kind of like layers in the fence to use James Reason's model, like in the Swiss cheese. These are all layers in the fence, not saying that one is the, is the, is the critical control. And as time goes on, we've seen that all of these things are all preventative for different people at different stages. Like we've seen probably like the data for the vaccine is probably better for people over 70, more protective, maybe masks and hospitals and so on. But maybe that sort of approach wasn't required for people living in a farming community, for example, you know, so there's all different types of approaches. This one size fits all. And, I don't think is appropriate. 
That's why as well, we just recently had published what we call a fatigue risk management diagnostic system where we published our um, and validated our methodology in terms of diagnosing a fatigue risk management problem within the business. And we had that published at safety and health at work. And again, I can provide you a link to that paper because it's open access. Mm -hmm. But this is where we often get accused of, well, you told that company to do that strategy. They told this company to do the opposite. I'm like, yeah, because not one size fits all. And this is applicable to the wellness area as well. We're trying to start a program. I would say to HR directors or health and safety directors, don't just start a program for the sake of starting a program. Start a program where you can make some meaningful improvements. And the first place you should start is collecting some data in your organization. So don't just kind of, you know, stick your finger up into the air and see which way the wind is blowing. Do it on meaningful data where there is a problem. And that's what we often do in the diagnostic as well. We start unpacking this, looking at the data, looking at the business, doing modeling, extracting data within the business. And if we can, we administer questionnaires to, to the people in the business to understand what the issue is. Because it might necessarily be sleep is the issue. It could be alcohol consumption. It could be pain medication. It could be family issues. It could be whatever. And all of these components make up wellness. The other one as well, I've seen as well for many companies, and I don't think they address it enough, is financial education. Because people are, I've spoken to shift workers like, yeah, well, you know, I've, I'm divorced and I have a family I need to keep over here. And then I've got my new partner here and we've had a kid and I have to work as many extra shifts as I can to support them and these and, and so on. But you know, you know what I do with my time off, Ian? I bought myself a speedball. And I'm thinking <laughs> to myself, maybe you shouldn't have bought a speedball. Maybe you should be working less right. shifts and looking after your health because you're 52 and you just told me you had a heart attack. And you bought a speedboat to have more fun on your time off, but you're working like, you know, 30% of your time off on extra shifts. So it's even about getting that balance back in about financial management and so on. So I I think there's still a lot to do, but I think if you're going to develop a wellness program, have it data driven, if you can collect the data internally, Mm -hmm. if not, maybe do focus groups to try and work out what you're going to hit. And the third thing is to use things like what we do with diagnostic tools. But also I would urge people to think about the benefits I know that in America, particularly where insurance is an issue, if you can improve the health outcomes of your staff, such as reducing BMI, increasing aerobic capacity, and so on, and demonstrate this, insurance companies will give you a reduction. And so you may even actually save money on the premiums you're paying out versus your program. So you might get like a million dollars reduction in premiums, but your program costs you $400,000 to run internally. So look at those opportunities where you can save money because good health management should and will save you money every year and long-term. Right. And, and, and I think that is, that is so important of looking at the, the, the way that you can speak with your employees in about more that holistic view of, of health, of, of being able to, to understand that, there are different causes and effects of obviously the work they're doing, uh, but also making sure that, you know, they're not experiencing that burnout, you know, based on the workload or even just understanding that, hey, you know, you might actually need to even shift the hour forward for the start time because that will actually increase productivity. It could in- increase morale. The, you know, these are different things that you could start to look at of, of, of forming those data plans or, or I guess more f- compiling that data to form those plans. And I think that is crucial when companies are, are looking at their say five, 10 year plans and, and goals of understanding the effects of the growth of their company on, the, on their workers. Hundred percent. I couldn't agree with you more, Catherine. I think too often we see wellness programs where we give people like a pedometer, a step counter, or a Fitbit, and we do it, and it's a great gimmick. And people are like, "Oh, I got a free Fitbit, or I got this, I got whatever." It's great, but is that linked to your overall plan, which links into your strategy? Is it data driven? Are we getting what we want to get over? I'm not saying those things aren't good, but we need to strategically deploy them. That's in line. So a Fitbit's not going to help with like you know an alcohol education strategy, or where we have people. Um, you know, abusing pain medication, for example. So mm-hmm. we need to make sure that we're, our, our interventions are aligned with our problems. So we're actually getting an outcome. And I know it sounds very simple, but too often I think we get into this habit in the health and wellness area of gimmicks and getting people to latch onto something or it needs to be strategic. We need to get an outcome. Right. And, and understanding the, the causes and effects of what you're doing 
and and it can be everything from obviously increasing you know making sure that people are sleeping well enough so that they're uh so that they are actually getting a good response time, especially mm. when you're in those high risk occupations, that's crucial. And that's something that you're going to see when you're looking at your overall, you know, numbers at the end of the year of what are your work-related injuries overall for your company, especially in those high risk occupations. If you're not looking at the actual causes of those work-related injuries um, based on fatigue, based on uh, sleep management, I think that's something that you might miss out on. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. I think you're dead right, yeah. And harvest existing data as well to look at, you know, particular other trends in as well, such as time of year effect in incidents and data, in, in your incidents, in, sorry, incident data. So, you know, is there more events happening in summer or winter or around Christmas time or Thanksgiving or Halloween, whatever it might be, looking for these mm -hmm. things? Is there a time of day effect? Are we seeing more incidents between three and six o'clock in the morning or one and two in the afternoon? Are we seeing at the start of shift, the end of shift? Are we seeing more hazards in one area? Um, you know, this kind of data mining of your of your existing data for diurnal or time of day effects is key as well. We might necessarily have it as an output in our data system, but it's harvesting that data to look for trends that might be in there. And um, these are these kind of gremlins that we go looking for and to see where they are and opportunities right. for improvement. And we tend to find in businesses where we explore this that um, in areas where there's lots of incidents and we start drilling it back, generally have more workers' compensation claims, more absenteeism, more turnover, higher overtime, higher risk um, of shift shift work disorder, um, mm -hmm. higher risk associated with actual shift work design. And then we often find poor satisfaction, poor leadership, and so on and so on. Now, which direction that's gone? Not really sure. The, sometimes it's bi-directional. Sometimes it's coming back from... Uh, um, from sometimes it's driven by the leaders and culture, but and then sometimes just driven by the nature of the design of the roster. But at least now we're finding a sort of a map or a multiple kind of inputs into this problem, and we can start now strategically striking on them to make improvements. So we might decide right. then which levers will give us our best bang for our book by pulling on those to to get these interventions in. Right, and 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 what you said before of making sure that any of those wellness programs are tailored to the specific needs of your employees, you know, based on the data that you, that you compile. Yeah. And for, for HR uh, directors and wellness directors or health and safety directors, um, we often struggle with articulating the value of our programs into the broader business. If we're reporting to a, like a, a chief operating officer, GM CEO, who's maybe might be an accountant or an engineer. Mm -hmm. So if you can tell that log logical story, like here's the background, you know, you know, health and safety is an issue in our business. We did this methodology. We surveyed every person in the business and we looked at the data in the system and we've come up with two strategic outputs from this to result. One is that people are dissatisfied with the roster. Um, so we need to look at the roster design. And two, um, you know, we've looked at the data and we see that actually on the last shift of every second week, when before people go off, have a week off, for example, maybe that, there's lots of incidents and accidents or hazards. So our program now is going to be about roster redesign as opposed to giving everybody a Fitbit. So if you can tell that logical story into GMs and CEOs, you're more likely to get what you want. And also use colors, I think, is, is key as well for articulating that, that sort of thing. Red is bad. Amber needs some improvement and green is good. Those right. little traffic light things are gold as well because your leaders are busy. And so we often use that as well. And it sounds really simple. And some people are probably listening to this going, well, duh, I knew that. But other people might be listening and going, oh, that's actually quite good. So you're kind of just flagging things really quickly for leaders. And then also try to get everything onto one page as well, if you can, just those salient highlight, highlighted points. So the background, yeah. the method, the results, and the next next step, um, that's key as well, because lots of these leaders are very busy. And you can have your 50-page report in the background if you're challenged, if you want. But just trying to keep things on one page can be can be helpful as well. But <clears throat> excuse me, be data driven, tell a story, and be be concise with your actions. Yeah. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Ian, for joining us today. No problem. I hope that was of benefit. I hope I didn't rant too much. Um, I get quite <laughs> passionate about this subject. I could sit here all day no. talking about it. I love it. Oh yeah, no, no, and 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 I completely understand because it it is such a multifaceted 
uh, subject that I think is constantly changing. And, you know, people are constantly doing more and more of those studies to fully understand the effects of the world around us and how it affects us individually. Um, so, no, thank you so much for joining us. Because that's no way. It's it, it's a subject that is, I think, very, very interesting um, and in, in a global sense, but also, like I said, for that individual. Um, and thank you all um, for joining us on Dorden's Injury Prevention Academy and tune in next time to learn more about the innovative steps and programs taking place in today's world of safety. Mm -hmm.